0: Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. hear me, hear it is.
1: Here it is, here it is. Of the United States, what the forces is down
0: with that in session. God save the United States of America
2: this moment. Welcome to another edition of Crim Law Presents Podcast. My name is Major James Barrett with the Crim Law Department, and today I have myself and Lieutenant Colonel Trevor Barna, the chair of the Academic Criminal Law Department here at T. Jaglick. Sir, how are you doing today?
1: Good, James. So, I look forward to talking about this. It's been a while. We uh, have been putting this off, so it's nice to get to this uh, unlawful command influence case of United States versus Gilmet. Uh, so, let's go ahead and get to it. Let's talk yes. about the procedural background. Uh, James, how did this case uh, get to CAF?
2: Sir, it was an Article 62 appeal originated from the trial court level. Uh, At the trial court level, the judge found actual and apparent UCI involving a a Marine Corps case, uh, dismissed the case with prejudice, appealed it to uh, the—government appealed it under Article 62 to the NMCCA, which subsequently reversed the military judge's ruling. The accused uh, petitioned to CAF, CAF granted the issue, and here we sit.
1: So this case, uh, I think the uh, unique factual background is, is pretty important, so I'm going to go through that uh, with a little bit of detail. The UCI, the Unlawful Command Influence allegations, stem from not a commander taking action in the case that had an impact on the proceedings, but instead another lawyer. Uh, in this case, there was the uh, Marine Corps 06, who was responsible for the assignments of all marine judge advocates, giving a talk about the Marine Corps Office of Special Trial Counsel. When he was uh, talking to defense counsel at Camp Lejeune, the counsel asked him a question. In fact, one of the attorneys was Chief Hospitalman Gilmets' attorney and said, how are you going to protect the OSTIC counsel? Is it going to be similar to the protections that we have as defense counsel? The Marine Corps 06 then said that while defense counsel may think that they are protected, that they, in fact, were not. And he called the protections, quote, a legal fiction. He went on to address the defense counsel specifically by saying, I know who you are, I know what cases you're on, and you are not protected. He then went on to say that the Marine Corps was a small community and that superiors sitting on promotion boards would know what the defense counsel did. He concluded by referencing several defense counsel who, in the opinion of the assignments officer, should have been promoted but weren't, implying that they were passed over due to their extensive time as defense counsel.
2: Sir, uh, after this meeting with the assignments officer, Uh, What was the defense counsel's response? What did they ultimately do?
1: So the defense counsel who appeared at the meeting went back and discussed with his co-counsel, another military detailed defense counsel, what the assignments officer said. Uh, Interestingly enough, the um, main attorney on that case was a civilian who suggested that they file an unlawful command influence motion based on what the assignments officer said. The attorneys both indicated in their motions that they felt that they could no longer represent their client, that their concern was, should they represent their client as needed, that their careers would be permanently impacted, and they told their their client as much, and the judge even asked the, um, the accused what he felt about the changes in the uh, attorneys and their affect and how they behaved, and he had said to the the judge, "I felt that before this, they were uh, exemplary lawyers. They had my best interest at heart, but after this, they seemed to distance themselves from me, and I felt that there was an actual impact on their representation of me in these proceedings."
2: Yes, sir. And we're we're what we're getting around to is their their right to conflict-free counsel and the the fact that they couldn't feel like they couldn't represent their client to the fullest extent because of career issues created this conflict that was now present within their relationship. And so they subsequently sought to sever that relationship, at least the accused sought to sever that relationship with their counsel and ultimately did uh, with the judge's permission, which also, again, feeds into our next uh, topic of of actual UCI, which is what CAF is is really looking at here in this case. Correct, sir?
1: That's right. So you know, the, the allegation of UCI was that the assignments officer had interfered with the relationship, the um, independent relationship of the attorneys and the accused, and that that involvement uh, created a prejudice, an actual prejudice to the accused. Interestingly, what happened was they made their, uh, the attorneys went in and told the court their concerns, they filed their UCI motion. The judge, rather than uh, taking up the UCI motion instead asked the accused if he consented to the attorney's withdrawing or if he felt they needed to withdraw. The accused said he did. He felt that, that uh, despite their previous representation that it just it he felt that they couldn't represent him uh, adequately or zealously. The judge therefore granted the recusal motion of the attorneys and then took up the UCI motion. When he took up the UCI motion at that point, the prejudice had already occurred the interference with the attorney-client relationship had been impacted, and the judge then granted the UCI motion, both on apparent and actual
2: uh, UCI grounds. Yes, James, do you
1: want to talk for a second about what NMCCA's uh, ruling was?
2: Uh, yes, sir. So actually, for, for uh, we'll talk about it a little bit, but the, for the appellate nerds out there, because this is an Article 62 appeal, sir, once the case uh, was taken up by CAF... CAF actually, because of the 62 nature of this appeal, looks directly at the military judge's ruling. They don't look at the uh, intermediate service court's ruling. So they skipped over yeah. that and went right to the judge. Now, CAF kind of short-circuits the apparent versus actual UCI right. because they, they fine for actual. But it is important to notice the NMCCA did look at this uh, from both actual and apparent UCI and... For, for fun, they looked at it. Is that these comments are shocking, um, but they, they really didn't do anything to affect a natural uh, or a disinterested observer's uh, perception of the system due to some of the corrective measures that uh, the Marine Corps took. Now, these are the same corrective measures that, that CAF went ahead and ultimately rejected, but uh, that's generally how we go from the military judge to a CCA to CAF, especially in the Article 62 context.
1: So what's interesting about that uh, in this conversation is because NMCCA took both of those up, both of those issues, the actual and apparent, I find it uh, fascinating because apparent seems to be under attack. Apparent UCI seems to, apparent UCI seems to be under attack. I find it therefore interesting that NMCCA decided to address that Yes, they, sir. in fact, addressed that issue first and said, no, we don't really think there's an issue. We feel that someone looking at these proceedings would, would not really be uh, concerned with the fairness. Yes, sir. And then they moved on to the, the UCI, but they already said that, you no, know, or excuse me, the uh, the actual UCI, but they said there's no apparent UCI.
2: Yes, sir. And uh, after we had done talking to Gilmatt, uh, it would be an interesting discussion a little for us to have, but... It is interesting how CAF goes ahead and sidesteps that issue by just going directly to the judge's uh, findings of actual UCI, because it actually makes sense too, right? If I can't cure actual UCI, how can I ever cure my apparent UCI problem right. if you're inclined to believe it exists?
1: <laughs> so that's interesting that you mentioned earlier about this, the steps that the, the Marine Corps took to try and cure the UCI. Uh, what steps did they actually take in trying to cure the, the actual UCI in this case, or the apparent UCI?
2: So it's interesting, sir. First, they got an affidavit from um, Major General Bly, uh, their, their head Marine Corps, essentially equivalent of TJAG for the Marine Corps. Uh, they got an affidavit from him saying, hey, everybody's fine, defense counsel are integral, and your uh, essentially career should be unaffected by time done in TDS or actions that you took. Next, they pointed out that the Marine Corps assignments officer was suspended and ultimately removed from that position, so he can no longer affect um, these captains' uh, assignments. And they also put in several instances of people that have uh, done defense time and have ultimately done very well. And that's basically what they brought forward to CAF, and CAF goes one by one, and I won't use the word summarily rejects them, but uh, doesn't find um, that very persuasive.
1: Right. And what they did with respect to the the curative steps that they that the Marine Corps took in this case is they first started off with, well, did the judge make the right decision in taking up the recusal motion before the UCI motion, and the court came back and said that's within the judge's discretion that was completely appropriate for him to make that determination. He uh, had the conversation with the accused, made the decision that the attorneys could no longer represent their client, and then moved on to the UCI. CAF had no issue with that, despite the fact that NMCCA did. Um, As you said, again, based on this type of appeal, probably not the, the critical issue, but I find it interesting that they took some time and addressed that issue. Then moving on to those steps that the Marine Corps took to fix this UCI problem, CAF came back in and said, well, you know what? It's fine that we are trying to tell people that their careers are safe, that they are safe, that they can do what is appropriate. But these attorneys felt otherwise. And the messaging that went out did not go to these attorneys, and it was too late.
2: Yes, sir. And I think it's and it's ultimately CAF's last point, but it's very important to note that we're dealing with an accused right to counsel and in the military's accused statutory right to counsel under Article 38B and that is that is where the prejudice really comes in in this case where you have a counsel who's got their their own, or I'm sorry, you have an appellant who's got their own counsel and because of the government's actions, you have, you have deprived them of this right. And when you deprive them of this right, um, I think In a case like this if it had been some other issue out there it may not have received the potential attention that it did but um, it's very important to note that we are talking about somebody's right to counsel here
1: so it may be um, worthwhile at this point to mention uh, just as a reminder to our listeners the difference between actual and apparent uci i know we've already (laughs) used the term over and over but um apparent uci is when an unlawful command influence uh, exists in an objective disinterested observer fully informed of all the facts and circumstances would harbor a significant doubt about the fairness of the proceeding. Vice an actual, an actual UCI, there's actual prejudice. It's not just the appearance. It actually, there's prejudice in that case. And that comes up in, in Gilmet, where there was actual prejudice, not just the appearance of. So let's talk a little bit, James, about the, the state to, of apparent.
2: Yes, sir. Nerd out a little bit more with me here. When you start talking about actual UCI, you've got two kinds. You've mm. got uh, you've got accusatory, and you've got adjudicatory. And accusatory is about the referral referral process right. and that that lines. And then the adjudicatory is is we're talking about the actual people involved. And I think this squarely lands within adjudicatory, which, if my memory serves me right, and somebody out on the airwaves can email me and correct me, but. Uh, the adjudicatory UCI is not wavable. And so, uh, first, I love that exist. you're dating
1: yourself with airwaves. That's fine. Uh, I don't think this is going out on airwaves, but uh, again, perfect. Um, and I'm very no, proud sorry. of you for, for hammering home the point on uh, adjudicatory versus accusatory. Um, you know, and again, UCI is one of those, um, those topics that is so important to our system that the, the courts have mentioned over and over again. And my favorite line really is that, unlawful command influence is a malignancy that eats away at the fairness of our military justice system, which again, I go back to if that's what the focus is, why does it appear that a parent is losing ground and we're only looking at actual prejudice? Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Uh, yes, sir. So they've recently amended, well, not recently now for for a year or so now they've amended article 37 C more in line, um, with Article 59 Alpha, there's a growing debate about whether apparent UCI even exists now with the amendments to Article 37, and specifically Article 37, Charlie, which now states no finding or sentence of a court martial may be held incorrect on the ground of a violation of this section unless the violation materially prejudice the substantial rights of the accused. And so the idea is. How can I ever materially prejudice the rights of the accused when an outside observer thinks that uh, something is is awry with uh, the military justice system? They have to show actual prejudice to their actual case, and it all goes back to Judge Ryan's opinion, I believe, in Boyce, where as Secretary of the Air Force is Well, her, comments, her dissenting opinion. Dissenting opinion, yes, uh, which has now been codified uh, in our Article 37. But it's it's the idea that. Something that's not involved with your case, how can it ever in inject itself into your actual case? And how can you ever show that that type of prejudice actually occurs? And so, there's a, a strong contingent believes that apparent UCI is no longer a trial, a trial level remedy.
1: So we, we, you and I have had a conversation about this topic in terms of is it a statutory? Meaning, is it, is it in the, the code itself uh, like it is in Article 37, or is it something that is constitutional? Uh, what are your thoughts on whether or not UCI, whether it's apparent or actual, goes above just the Article 37 statutory requirement and it becomes constitutionally required?
2: Sir, it's an interesting question. It's interesting that the government has to disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. To me, that is something a little higher standard than you get uh, with the filing of other motions or basically are mostly our proponents of the evidence or clear and convincing and are prescribed uh, within the actual MREs or the RCMs themselves uh, in this case uh, if you believe it's a constitutional connection then the amendments to article 37 Charlie really don't make a difference one way or the other because article 59 a which is basically uh, where they lifted the language out of 37C from, has always been there. And that's what Judge Ryan said in her dissent in U.S. versus Boyce. She said, hey, Article 59A says I can only give an accused relief at on appeal if they can show, I'm going to use the words exactly, a, a violation uh, unless there's a material prejudice of substantial rights of the accused. And that's why she said, hey, I can't, I can't do this unless unless the accused actually brings me something in the forms of facts or evidence and in that case they didn't do that. Judge Ryan also posits that um, she says quote I posit that Congress had good reason to tether appellate relief to article 59A's requirement of prejudice to the accused because again um, more excitement here sir CAF and the CCA's exist because Congress decided that they existed, and so her point is, I can only act within the statutory authority that Congress gave me, and by having Article 59A there, and by having Article 37 Charlie there now, Congress has now acted in a manner to further constrain their uh, jurisdictional review of cases and convictions.
1: So, uh, last couple thoughts on uh, Gilmet, and you know, Gilmet is yet another case in a long line of cases. In the last few years, that deals with unlawful command influence, not from a commander, but rather from an attorney. If you look at uh, US v. Boyce, which you mentioned earlier, uh, again, an Air Force case. And while Lieutenant General Franklin was involved uh, in that case, really what happened was he was directed to make a, a ruling on post trial matters. Barry, again, United States versus Barry, a case that involved. Uh, advice to a rear admiral from the Navy uh, d at the time, USV Horn, USV Bergdahl. Really, none of these cases involved a, the commander that we think of when we say unlawful command influence, whether it's a company commander, battalion, or brigade. Instead, it's, it's somebody special or unique. You know, and again, Article 37 does change to include anyone subject to the code. It includes uh, general officers and convening authorities. But for the practitioners, I think it's a decent point to discuss for just a second this ongoing issue of others being involved in the process that has, and again, as we discussed, actual prejudice to the proceedings.
2: Yes, sir. I think part of the issue is uh, litigation is inherently emotionally charged. Uh, People, uh, it's high stakes. Uh, Somebody's, somebody, whether it's from the SVC perspective, uh, the victim, uh, or it's the defense counsel's perspective, or even the command's perspective about good order and discipline, uh, everybody uh, has some very strong, passionate opinions. And the closer you are to the problem, I think the more apt you are to sometimes maybe losing some objectivity, and I think as judge advocates, the more we've gotten in, um, closer to the problem, the more than sometimes we've gotten pulled into the fray a little bit versus uh, commanders who've had to, you know, deal with these issues uh, solely by themselves in the past in, in deployed environments like Vietnam, Gulf War, even the beginning of Iraq War and Afghanistan. But as judge advocates find themselves closer and closer to this, it's easy to get, uh, pulled into the, not to the fray a little bit, that's not the right word sir, but pulled, uh, be, be looked at, have our, our what we said and our, our actions maybe looked at a little more scrutinized.
1: Well, and, and it's an, a good point to um, discuss then, talk about being pulled into the fray, this, um, the origination and the creation of the Office of Special Trial Counsel. Again, as a convening authorities, that applies to them, UCI does not go away. And again, with UCI being, um, focus on the actual prejudice in some of the cases talking about the prejudice to the accused in terms of being able to call witnesses and being able to put on a defense and being able to have any number of different um, concerns with representation with his ability to call experts. I, I don't see UCI going away anytime soon, and in fact, I I think we're going to uh, perhaps see some new and novel issues.
2: Yes, sir. And the issue is too is you've have you have the stick, which is taking referral authority, but you still have convening authorities that still are convening court marshals, and so you've got referral authorities and convening authorities that are subject to the code, but it it, it not working together as in the traditional sense, which could potentially again have more. Uh, more opportunities or consequences of unique litigation coming forward. I think the, the real lesson for the field is to just you know, sometimes take a step back, think through the problem a little bit before you decide to um, you know, say something to somebody. As I always say and we always say in our office, sir, open the book, stick to the rules and uh, uh, you know, the minute you begin to maybe take things personal is the time that things may go off the, go off the rails for you.
1: So last uh, thought on US v. Gilmette is uh, the court, uh, again, CAF came back in and said that there was actual UCI, that the curative steps taken by uh, the Marine Corps to remedy the UCI uh, were ineffective, and they um, overturned NMCCA, and the case was uh, dismissed with prejudice. And so that that was the end of, of that trial. Um, any other thoughts, James, on Gilmet? Uh,
2: no, sir. I think we've uh, I think we've covered it pretty thoroughly.
1: All right. <laughs> well, you sir, want to close this out?
2: Yes, sir. I want to thank you for uh, being here with us today, sir. Uh, always a treat to have the uh, ADC uh, chair join us. But uh, for for everyone else out there, continue all the hard work that you're doing, and uh, remember to uh, subscribe and uh, listen to the criminal law department podcast podcast excuse me uh, because we're always excited and look for new episodes uh, about weekly from us and uh, if you got any suggestions for us reach out more than happy to take a listen to them thank you sir
1: thank you
0: Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel,
1: for both sides and the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.